Welcome to the Actionable Futurist podcast, a show all about the near-term future with practical and actionable advice from a range of global experts to help you stay ahead of the curve. Every episode answers the question, what's the future of? With voices and opinions that need to be heard. Your host is international keynote speaker and actionable futurist, Andrew Grill. My guest today is Trevor Hutchings, Director of Strategy and Communications at GemServe. Trevor joined the company in May 2017 after spending much of his early career in the UK civil service, working in a number of government departments and with the European Commissions in Brussels, including positions in the Department of Energy and Climate Change, where he's responsible for major programs on energy efficiency and the low carbon economy. He went on to join the World Wildlife Fund, the global conservation charity, where he was Director of Advocacy, working to improve public policy on the environment. As well as his role at GemServe, Trevor is chair of the Green Purposes Company, set up by the government to safeguard the green mission of the UK's Green Investment Bank. He's also a fellow at the Institute of Environmental Management Assessment. Welcome, Trevor. Andrew, very good to be here. Today, we're here to talk about a topic that's been in the news a lot lately, that of the right to repair of technical devices and the whole notion of sustainability. So maybe for our listeners, you could outline what it means by the right to repair as a concept and why it now is so important. Right to repair, as it's been called, is a set of regulations that ensure electrical goods, so things like TVs, washing machines, dishwashers, can be repaired rather than thrown on the scrap heap. So the effect being to save consumers money and importantly, to help protect the environment by reducing consumption and waste. But hasn't that been something we can do all along? I've had various things repaired by third party people and things replaced. Why is it now coming to the fore? If your car goes wrong, you don't generally put it on the scrap heap, do you? But for items like uh, TVs and other electrical goods, uh, generally, though, people don't uh, get them repaired. It's been difficult to get them repaired. There's been no instructions, no spare parts, and ultimately it ends up on, on the scrap heap, which is a really you know, inefficient and wasteful uh, practice. And so these regulations are very much about reducing uh, about one and a half billion tons of waste of electrical goods every year uh, and, and enabling them to be repaired, extending their life uh, by up to 10 years uh, and potentially reducing uh, or saving uh, consumers £75 uh, a year um, by doing so. It's a huge saving, not on just financial terms, but also the environment. Is it fair to say that manufacturers haven't really been set up to do this? They've assumed that some of these devices are expendable and people will just throw them on the scrap heaps, which means that the manuals, the spare parts haven't always been readily available. Well, that that is the case. And I think there's there's a bigger game in town here. This right to repair is part of a move to what we call a circular economy. Uh, which is absolutely fundamental if we're going to tackle climate change and environmental decline. At the moment, we have a linear model, extracting raw materials from the earth, making products of them, and then throwing those products uh, away after their lifetime. You know, that's damaging, it's inefficient. A circular model would break uh, that linear uh, linear approach and would uh, eliminate waste by keeping those resources in the economy for longer, getting maximum value out of them by repairing, by recycling, by reusing uh, and avoiding uh, the damage that comes by uh, you know, putting them into landfill if, if that's what happens to them. So that circular economy is absolutely fundamental to all business models, I would say, going forward. 
Now, the whole ESG net zero debate is becoming more and more important. It's fair to say that younger members of society are looking to products and services and companies that actually support that because they know that the environment is a very scarce resource. I suppose one standout company for me is Apple. Now, I know that the right to repair doesn't actually cover mobile phones, and we'll park that for the moment, but they've been very clear on all of their big presentations when they launch a new iPhone or a new Mac. They talk about the sustainability. They talk about the packaging. Ironically, if you buy an iPhone these days, they do not supply a charger or a manual. It's basically a box with the device in it. Is Apple leading the way here? They're certainly doing in the right direction. Um, you know, they, they've launched a self-repair service in, in 2021. Um, and we're seeing other brands follow as well. You know, Samsung in the US, you know, Galaxy device owners are able to take their um, their product and the repair of that into their own hands by having access to to um, you know to the manuals and to the repairable parts. So so yeah, th- there are a number of companies stepping up on this. Um, but we what we need to see to make a real uh, dent on on this issue of you know over overconsumption, not using products to their full uh, life cycle ability and just simply disposing at the end. And we need all businesses to step up. I suppose the notion of a use-by date, you buy something that's consumable, whether it be fruit or food or milk, and you know that there is a time when you can't use that product anymore. I'm just thinking aloud, but should manufacturers say, look, we expect this will last seven years, but to extend it to 12 years, here's what you can do. I know that a lot of companies offer this extended warranty so that they encourage you to repair it at low or no cost going forward. But is there an initiative or is there a some sort of way that we can tell people that this device, this product, this service, Service can actually go beyond what you would expect it would normally do. Under the right to repair regulations, there are requirements around labelling uh, to ensure that the, the consumer is aware of its repairability. I think it's important, though, to point out that these regulations apply to professional repairers. You know, there's clearly a, a risk around the consumer opening up the back of the electrical, you know, dishwasher um, and, and tinkering around themselves. So we've got to be mindful of that. But there are calls to extend these regulations um, and to enable consumers to, to do more. But these regulations are really about that professional repair market uh, and, and expanding that and I think, though, it's also driving to your point, it will drive other business models. And so we see now with with mobile phones and other uh, devices, a, a more of a leasing arrangement. So actually, you know, it will be ultimately the device uh, will be used for a period of time and then handed back to, to Apple or, or uh, the, the manufacturer. And they will then oversee its refurbishment and reintroduction into the market. So, you know, this whole area of right to repair and the circular economy is going to to spawn a whole range of new business models going forward. I suppose I'm guilty that because I'm a futurist and I have to have the latest phone, when the new i-series comes out, I upgrade. And I've been using a a company called PhoneBank. They're up in um, Shoreditch and I've been using them for years. Every time I want to get rid of my phone, I would then sell it to them at the secondhand rate. And sometimes their rate is better or close to what I'd get on eBay. But I know they have a program of actually recycling phones and getting them into other areas. Am I doing the wrong thing? Should I just keep my phone a lot longer or by putting it into this circular economy and having people like PhoneMac and others do that, is that the right way to upgrade by being respectful of the environment? I personally think that people should get more from their devices, longevity, uh, to to you know keep overconsumption at bay. But look, these companies are helping 
with the circular economy by ensuring that those raw materials that are in our phones are, are kept into the economy and reused again. And of course, what these regulations will, will drive is for manufacturers and their supply chain to think you know, much differently uh, going forward. So about the product design, about the materials that are used in the product, about how those materials um, perhaps are traced once they enter the supply chain uh, and that there is um, assurance that they're not counterfeit materials, that the uh, the whole governance around this, that there's enforcement, that actually there's no greenwashing, that there is a genuine environmental benefit, that if you do hand your phone back uh, for it to be refurbished, that is uh, better than keeping it uh, the cell. So there's lots going on here. Um, and I think it's really important that, that the government legislation is backing this move to a circular economy, that businesses are embracing it, and that the consumers are much more aware of their personal responsibility uh, to the environment, asking the right questions and demanding the, the level of business conduct that we would expect. So let's go to the regulations. We've mentioned it a couple of times the UK government's right to repair regulation was released in June 2021. I hadn't heard of it. The only time I even heard the phrase right to repair was when there was some discussion in the news about Apple. And if you break your phone, it's very hard to get a third party repairer to repair it until now. But talk me through the regulation. What was it designed to do? Does it go far enough? And why haven't we heard about it? Starting on why we haven't heard about it. Um, it didn't get launched, I don't think, with with a lot of fanfare. Yeah, you know, it's got a bit of history. It, it did originally come uh, as part of EU uh, regulations, uh, and what we have done in the UK is now transpose that into to UK legislation. We've had obviously Brexit uh, in the meantime. It's quite technical. It's secondary legislation, um, and and obviously you know the press perhaps would look rather pick up on things like straight bananas coming out of, of Brussels than than some of these technical uh, standards. But they, the regulations are in place. They applied from uh, summer of 2021. There is a, a period of grace. Uh, where manufacturers, um, before manufacturers have to, to supply the spare parts, but any products, uh, that are caught by the regulations, uh, since, since last summer, uh, now need to, to comply with that. And, and, and in essence, what the regulation is doing is saying to, to manufacturers that you must make available to professional repairers, uh, the right spare parts, um, for repairing, uh, these products. You know, you, you can't, uh, stipulate that there needs to be particular technical tools or bespoke tools to, to do that. It's got to be made easy. And it's also saying that the, the manuals, the instructions on what goes uh, with, with the spare parts are, again, made, made available. And the whole point being that um, by repairing uh, these products, we can extend their lifetime by up, to, by up to 10 years. And, you know, on average, there can be up to a £75 uh, per household uh, saving per year. I suppose the balance is for companies, they're looking at, well, I would rather sell them a new device at a nice margin than lower cost repair. Other than legislation, what is the driver for companies to really adhere to a net zero sustainability agenda? In my uh, career, it's all being dominated by ensuring that 
businesses um, take much more responsibility for environmental stewardship. And you know, we, we've moved from a position where perhaps businesses acted on this agenda because they were obliged to do so. It was a, a you know, regulatory compliance issue. It was a risk. Whereas now we're seeing businesses see that uh, their dependence on on nature, on the environment, on sustainability is never been so acute, whether that's through their supply chains or indeed as consumers are demanding more responsible business practices. And, and, and that shift has happened. But there's still some way to go. We're seeing businesses still treat their responsibilities as one of minimizing their environmental impact on the world. Whereas actually what net zero requires and, and to reverse the decline in, uh, in environmental degradation, we need to see businesses net positive, putting back more than they're taking out. Interesting debate. So call me a skeptic, but when I read that company X has planted a whole heap of trees to offset the carbon, is that really what they should be doing? Or should they be looking at the whole manufacturing process where they source things, energy efficiency, right to repair? Or am I just being a cranky old cynic? Carbon offsetting through, you know, planting of, of trees, it's got its place. But absolutely, the fundamental approach needs to be throughout the, the entire uh, supply chain. And, and that, as you say, starts from, if you're a manufacturing business, from how you source your raw material, uh, you know, at, right the way through to how it's dealt with at the end of its uh, lifetime. And, and we're seeing some great models out there, great organizations that are taking uh, their responsibility seriously, stepping up to the mark, but, but they are generally the exception. And we need to see much more of that. And, and we're on a trajectory now. You know, the awareness of these sorts of ESG, environmental social governance responsibilities on business, has never been higher. The awareness amongst consumers has never been higher. The, the legislation and the policy that is driving responsible behavior is flowing. Uh, but, you know, there is still a way to go. We've, we, we've got to take much more steps to get to net zero. Uh, and the circular economy, uh, cradle to grave, uh, throughout the supply chain, as we just talked about, is, is a fundamental part of that. I have a lot of marketers that listen to this podcast, and I'm thinking aloud also that there's a marketing initiative here. They can actually lead the way and, and go into the business and say, hey, not only should we be a good corporate citizen, we can be. And I'm thinking in terms of marketing, at the moment, if you buy a washing machine, for example, I think under legislation, it gives you a grade of how energy efficient it is. So you'd rather buy an A than a D because it's not going to drive as much energy uses. And in the current climate, energy uses is really important. But is there a scale or a traffic like to say, this is how easy this is to repair? First of all, it's going to last a lot longer than our competitor because we've made it out of better materials. Almost like a graded system as a marketer to say, hey, buy from us because we have products that are better for the environment not just when they're being used, but when they break down. Sustainability as a differentiator is absolutely, uh, I think, an area that needs to be explored further. I think, um, as I say, the, the consumer is much more wary of this. And um, yeah, absolutely. I see no reason why uh, organizations can't try and differentiate themselves. In fact, they should try and differentiate themselves on their environmental performance. And interestingly, you refer to the you know, energy efficiency of, of, of products. Those regulations, you know, first spawned um, from the EU, have have 
dramatically increased the energy efficiency of of white goods. And the labeling as part of that has played a key role. And I think the repairability of products could equally um, be enhanced through greater consumer awareness through labeling. In terms of consumer awareness, it looks like the government dropped the legislation and didn't have a program to promote it, or maybe it got lost in all the other noise. Who can promote this? Is it just a government initiative? Is it the manufacturers? Is it uh, lobby groups? Is it GemServe? Who should be out there raising the awareness so people are asking, yes, is it energy efficient, but can I repair it? This whole area... You know, right to repair, and I think you know that that shift to a, a circular economy. You know, there's a real social movement behind it, actually, and we see a number of organisations really uh, driving it forward. Um, you know, such as charities who are advocating for stronger regulation in this space, who are you know, running uh, repair parties and events uh, to promote it and to help their their consumer base repair cafes you know ESG activists who are, are demanding uh, as shareholders uh, that their uh, companies do more in this area so there's a lot going on i think government you know has got a, a key role to play in that and of course it's not just in the uk it's a global uh, issue but i th- would always go back also though to the manufacturer uh, this is potentially a differentiator and and the the manufacturers and the retailers need to demonstrate that they're taking these issues seriously and um and i think their consumers and their 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 clients their customers expect nothing less now in my introduction i read your background and clearly you've been at the front of sustainability and environmental issues your whole career how have you brought your experiences with wwf and the eu commission into the business world when it comes to conservation and sustainability my career has all been about driving better environmental stewardship through stronger policy, stronger regulation, stronger governance, you know, whether that's about you know, preventing overfishing and degradation of the marine environment, which is perhaps where I started, through to tackling climate change and, and wider environmental decline. What is clear to me that business has an absolutely fundamental role to play in that. And I've seen a shift where businesses are embracing uh, this agenda. They've moved on from you know, sustainability being perhaps a, a legal obligation that they needed to do in parts to a situation today where the, the appreciation of the dependency of their business model on their supply chains uh, that may be being impacted by you know, drought in, in, in countries in Africa where they source their raw materials, for example. That knowledge is just so much better uh, today. The important point, though, is that I think business still needs to go quite a bit further. Environmental sustainability is often seen as about minimizing the impact that their business model has, whereas actually what they need to be doing is being net positive, giving back more than they take out and and that is the only way that we're going to get to our net zero targets and to reverse environmental decline. So talk to me about what GemServe does, where you play a role in this net positive, as you say, discussion, and how you can help companies move towards being more sustainable. 
at GemServe, we are we describe ourselves as a purpose-driven professional services firm. Like everything that we do is about delivering an environmental or social benefit through the consultancy and outsourcing services that we provide business and, and government. So, for example, we've been advising government and industry on the latest reforms to waste and recycling regulation. How can we make that work uh, better? Uh, we're also helping roll out uh, sustainable heating sources for homes, uh, absolutely fundamental if we're going to hit net zero. Uh, likewise, uh, supporting the rollout of smart metering, 53 million smart meters being rolled out in the UK to give us a smart energy system compatible with, with net zero. So, so everything that we do has, 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 is about that purpose-driven uh, outcome. And we've just uh, become a B Corp. Um, and uh, your listeners might be aware that that's a ESG accreditation for businesses operating operating at the highest levels of uh, of ESG standards. It's a you know, it's a force for good. It sees business as a force for good and really a validation of what GemServe is is doing in this space. So we're really proud of that. And uh, you know we're all about helping other organisations uh, achieve their social and environmental benefits. And you operate UK globally. What, tell us about your footprint and maybe some of the companies that you work with and the what sort of things you help them with. We're fairly small. We're we're two hundred and twenty staff. We're based in London and Birmingham and an office in uh, in Dublin. And uh, you know we've got a, a, a wide and varied client base. So. Everything from uh, government departments uh, and helping them deliver public policy programs on net zero, right the way through to some high street retail brands where we're helping them with their cybersecurity, their their uh, data protection requirements. So quite a broad spectrum, but all of that is about delivering you know social benefits. So you think about perhaps what's not so obvious, data protection. You know, that is one of, in my view, one of the biggest societal challenges at the moment is this proliferation in people's data. You know, you're putting in passwords online, etc. And and how is that data held securely and the cybersecurity that organizations need to um to deploy to, to keep one step ahead of the hackers. So you know Another example of the kind of thing that we're doing under that ESG banner. So you talked about smart meters, and interestingly, most of my friends that have smart meters call them dumb meters, and that's probably not the fault of them. But I think the energy industry is still grappling with how to effectively move from a legacy system to to one where you're actually showing energy consumption in the home. I gave a keynote speech at the Housing Technology Summit, and I said, you've already got dashboards in the home in the sense that you've got a smart meter there with some sort of instrumentation. I think to drive behavioral change, though, you need to show the consumer how they're consuming energy, not just that they're doing a lot or a little less. Is there an opportunity for having these smart meters go just beyond instrumentation, but maybe using AI and data around all aspects of what's happening in the home or the business to actually help encourage people to actively use Use less energy. The smart metering program at one point was the biggest infrastructure program uh, in Europe. It involves rolling out 53 million smart meters uh, across uh, you know, something like 27 million homes in the UK. So it's perhaps not unexpected that it's had its twists and turns and has been behind schedule. But where we are now is about half of all meters now are, are smart meters. The implementation uh, it continues 
to to get further penetration across the market. And what smart meters are designed to do is to um, inform home homeowners about the energy that they're using, and therefore driving the sort of you know the behaviour change to look at how they can uh, reduce energy consumption. There are other benefits from uh, more accurate uh, billing, and obviously having to uh, not having to send people around to to read meters and all the uh, environmental footprint that that brings and cost. So you know this as a very good thing and it's part of having a much smarter uh, energy system uh, so that we're better able to integrate you know renewables that are sometimes intermittent and match supply uh, with demand so they're a good thing um but to your question were they also driving other business models? So, for example, you know there are um, organisations out there with some really innovative um, products and services, whereby it can be a, a, an alert to um, perhaps a problem in in a home occupied by a vulnerable or, or old person. You know, they their electricity demand suddenly doesn't uh, go up in the morning. Whereas you'd normally expect that to be done when you know the boil the kettle's being boiled, you know that can then trigger an alarm to a carer to say actually there's unusual behaviour in this home. So there's all sorts of business models that will spawn from the idea of having a much more uh, real time uh, and visibility over use in the home. Obviously, coupled with real care and attention about making sure that we've got all of the data protection and cybersecurity um, elements in place and that consumers are actively consenting to have this sort of information shared for the services that, that, that they would like. And, and, and getting that right is going to be fundamental. Just one final thing on that whole right to repair legislation. Will this actually have a step change shift in the way manufacturers behave? The fact that it's a legal requirement will clearly um, drive changes in in, in behaviours of, of manufacturers. But I think what we're seeing, though, um, is that some manufacturers are are just going beyond the the legislation. Mobile phones, for example, are not included at the moment. Yet we see a number of business models emerging where mobile phone repair is is um, is very popular, uh, very cost effective. Uh, we're seeing the the big manufacturers make parts available and promote uh, the repair uh, of their goods. So so it's happening already. Um, clearly, manufacturers might see the fact that they they will be increasing the length that their products last for. You know, there's there may well be a commercial implication of that. But what I would say is that the, the, it will spawn different uh, business models uh, going forward um, as we move towards a more circular economy. The one thing that the private sector is very good at is, you know, adapting to change and innovating in order to ensure that they're consistent with their environmental responsibilities and also deliver commercial return. Almost out of time, but I will always run my guests through my favorite part of the podcast, my quick fire round, so we get to learn a little bit more about the person behind the podcast. So I'm going to ask you some quick questions. iPhone or Android? iPhone. Window or aisle? Aisle. Online or in the room? In the room. Your biggest hope? I mean, it's difficult to think, isn't it, beyond anything other than an end to the war in Ukraine. 
But if you push me on a sustainability point, shareholders voting with their feet. What's the app you use most on your phone? Microsoft Outlook, because it means I can do my emails on the go. The one thing you won't be doing again post-pandemic? Commuting into London five days a week. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Less is often more. What are you reading at the moment? A book called Net Positive by Paul Polman, the ex-CEO of Unilever. Who should I invite next onto the podcast? Well, I'm going to slightly dodge it. What what I would like uh, or suggest you cover, Andrew, if I may, is, is an issue called nature-based solutions. This is all about innovative commercial models uh, that will support uh, the investment in nature. So we've talked a lot about uh, the, the, the need to meet net zero. There's an equally pressing, if not more pressing, but a decline in biodiversity and, and natural habitat. And what we're seeing at the moment, albeit a frontier area, is some really innovative business models around in, investing in, in nature, you know, sustainable farming practices, uh, natural flood defences, for example. That will be an area that becomes mainstream over time. And I think, you know, a futurist like yourself uh, really ought to be grappling with that area. And the final question for Quickfire, how do you want to be remembered? Having helped improve the governance of the environment through better laws, better business, better institutions. As this is the Actionable Futurist podcast, what three actionable things should our audience do today when it comes to moving towards a net positive world? There's a lot that the individual uh, can do to really minimise their their environmental uh, footprint. There's all of the obvious things around, you know, being absolutely aware about levels of consumption and travel, flying, all of those things. There's about having your home insulated uh, to reduce the energy use and save on on your bill, having a smart meter installed looking to replace and upgrade your your heating system with a with a low carbon alternative there's loads of those sorts of things that people can do but perhaps less known but equally important is actually what people do with their their savings or their investments you know, most workers will have a pension where is their pension invested is it invested in organize, with organizations that don't have a great uh, environmental track record. You know, using their, their power to influence which funds, and there are a number of ethical and sustainably responsible pension funds out there. So the choice is there. But just ask the questions of your provider. Where is your money going? Because we need to shift the flows of capital from environmentally damaging activities into those that are responsible. Well said. And, and you don't think about that sometimes, that the way to have real change is, is hit companies where it hurts. And if you're not being sustainable, you're greenwashing, as you said, then move my funds somewhere else. And that also could be another marketing tactic or marketing campaign to say, you should invest in us either directly or through your pension fund, because we are a sustainable business and we want to be around here. We want the world to be around here for a lot longer. So Trevor, how can people find out more about you and your work? Do follow Gemsa's social media channels and check out our website. Trevor, a fantastic discussion, something that you've prompted me to be more aware of and hopefully our listeners as well. So thank you so much for your time today. It's my pleasure, Andrew. Nice to talk to you. 
Thank you for listening to the Actionable Futurist podcast. You can find all of our previous shows at actionablefuturist.com. And if you like what you've heard on the show, please consider subscribing via your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. You can find out more about Andrew and how he helps corporates navigate a disruptive digital world with keynote speeches and C-suite workshops delivered in person or virtually at actionablefuturist.com. Until next time, this has been the Actionable Futurist Podcast.